0: From the studios of Blue Ridge Public Radio, this is The Porch. I'm Matt Bush, and over the next hour, we'll close out 2021, a year that, like all others, has been unlike any other. But I think we all know 2021 has felt different. At best, we've been getting it wrong, and at worst, we've been right from the start. Later on, we hear how you can help fight climate change even after you're gone. And then Lily Kanep goes deep into the history of our region during Reconstruction, an era of history that shows up most often right now. First, our most common guest on the porch, political scientist Dr. Chris Cooper of Western Carolina University, joins us again to recap 2021 in North Carolina politics and look ahead as best we can into the uncertain future of 2022.
1: First thing we need to to get straight is that the primary date has moved back for all offices, right? So you might think, oh, maybe they'll just move it back for Congress or for the General Assembly. What the court said is our entire primary is being moved to May. Um, They also put forward a a pretty aggressive timeline as far as uh, hearing this case, so that the case has to be heard and complete by, uh, I believe it's January 11th. So we're gonna hear that. There will almost certainly be an appeal regardless of what the court decides. Um, and then uh, it will move forward. We need to get the mail ballots out, um, a specified number of days before the election. It is certainly possible that we can do that. I think it's gonna be a lot of work for folks like the Buncombe County Board of Elections, but it is certainly possible to do, and it seems like that is the timeline we'll be on. So what this means for listeners is expect your primary in May, We're not sure what the uh, General Assembly and the congressional lines are going to look like, but you certainly have a sense of what many of the other offices will look like.
0: Okay. So let's say the court does not agree with the illegal gerrymandering claims. Obviously, the primary would go ahead on May 17th with the lines that we have seen for the last month, correct?
1: That is exactly right. Yes. Yeah. So if, if the court does not side with the plaintiffs in this case, we will move forward with the, the maps that we've seen, the maps that have been distributed. This would be the 14th congressional district on the congressional side here locally. It would extend into Watauga County. It also critically makes some changes in Buncombe County and in other parts
0: of the region as well. Let's say they agree with the plaintiffs that this is a case of illegal gerrymandering. Now what? Right.
1: Yeah, so uh, at that point, we'll have to see. Um, I think there's a few different potential options, and we've seen all of them in North Carolina in the past. So one option is they just hand the ball back to the General Assembly and say, do better. Um, Another option is that they put somebody else in charge. Sometimes this is somebody called a special master. Um, So that person would then come in and draw the line. Sometimes, like in Virginia, they have two special masters, kind of one from each side of the aisle. So we're not sure exactly who would do the drawing, but if the court does make that decision, there will be new maps.
0: Given how long it might take to decide who draws the maps, obviously there's going to be an appeal even before we would get to that. Could the primary in May under this again, if the plan was were to win this case, could the primary in May be push back even further?
1: You know, I think anything's possible on uh, on opening day and anything's possible in North Carolina gerrymandering litigation. And so certainly that could happen. I think it's unlikely. I, I think it is likely that we will move forward with this primary date. But again, anything could happen. And certainly another movement would not be unprecedented in North Carolina. It's important to note we've been down this road before. We have delayed primaries in the past. Sometimes we've done it for all offices. Sometimes we've done it for just some offices. So I understand that it can be frustrating to voters, but this is not unprecedented by any stretch.
0: I guess then what happened, let's say the districts are redrawn in certain ways, and maybe some people have decided to run in a different district. We won't name names because I think everybody can figure out who we might be talking about. Let's say those districts are then drawn in a different way that may not be as favorable to them let's say someone who's already filed, can they unfile and then refile for something else? Take us through the whole filing process because that's also been thrown off here right now.
1: It has. And so what we ended up with, because the court kind of moved, made a bunch of different decisions, frankly, within the span of just a few days, um, we did have one day of filing, right? So you actually can see that a number of people did file from um, people filing for Congress, all the way down to uh, people filing for mayor of the city of Asheville, for example. if they do nothing, they will still be registered, filed, however you want to look at it, for that office. So um, if they want to change it though, they can. They are in a period where they can pull out of one office, register for another. So that could mean, hey, instead of running for the General Assembly, I want to move for Congress. It could mean, I want to move from the 13th Congressional District to the 14th Congressional District. It could mean moving really from any office to another. So it's uh, it's really wide open what it looks like from that point on.
0: And again, new districts Let's say there are people that say they don't want to run, but maybe when the districts are redrawn, they go like, all right, well, maybe I will because I felt that maybe the district as it was drawn for me targeted me or was less favorable. Um, can people then who said they're not going to run decide, hey, I am going to run?
1: Absolutely. Yes. It'll be open filing again. So we only had one day of filing. Filing um, runs for about two weeks usually. Uh, so really anything could happen. And many folks were planning to file later on in that period. I mean, there is some strategy behind when you decide to file. Some people want to get out early to kind of box out other people and say, hey, look, I'm I'm running and I'm the, the front runner. Other people might want to wait to the end as sort of a sneak attack, if you will. And we've seen various politicians try to use the filing deadlines to their benefit. I mean, famously in the 11th Congressional District, Mark Meadows decided announced his retirement um, in the small period after you were locked into one office, but before the end of the filing period. And that of course is what led to the rise of Linda Bennett, who won the first primary, lost the second primary to somebody we didn't know a lot about, somebody named Madison Cawthorne, of course, who ended up representing us in the 11th congressional district.
0: So we'll now talk about Congressman Cawthorne, currently slated to run in the 13th as opposed to the 14th under the lines that were drawn, which are now being reviewed by the court. You noted that by the time he had decided he wanted to run on the 13th, he actually still had more days left in office representing what is now the 11th um, than he had already served. Going back even further with Congressman Meadows, who had resigned in December 2019 to become President Trump's, Trump's chief of staff, there hadn't been a whole lot of representation for Western North Carolina in the House of Representatives, meaning someone physically in that office, Meadows wasn't there or someone who's already looking at running in a different office right now with Madison Cawthorn. What are the detriments to the region not having that representation, active representation in the House of Representatives in D.C.? I think it's a real problem for
1: for the region. I mean, so, yes, when Congressman Meadows decided he was going to become chief of staff, resigned the position, um, Governor Cooper could have called for a special election but chose not to do so. So we were without any representation at all for over half of a year, really almost an entire year. Um, And with Congressman Cawthorn looking eastward towards the 13th congressional district, it makes sense that his behavior is gonna change. I think that really is a problem for those of us who live in the current 11th, about to be 14th congressional district. I mean, there's the constituency service request, which may still get heard, but there's also the, You know, forethought that you would expect, the proactive decision-making that you would want a member of Congress to have, right? You elect somebody, ideally, who knows your district, who thinks about your district, who knows what the problems are that are going to arise. And ideally, you want somebody with a bit of a long time horizon, who's going to be able to think about
0: growth and development in the region. Just thinking about that, as you had mentioned it, just of the amount of time where there hasn't been a representative here, going back to when the prior congressman resigned, and to now, um, it seems like there is somebody's missing for the region. Um, even at this level, even though there's obviously all sorts of different levels in government, but there is something missing. At not having someone at that level,
1: you know, I've, I've read, and I think other people have too. You know, some folks who aren't big fans of, of Congressman Cawthorn who are writing him off and kind of saying, you know, good riddance to you. Um, but I'd remind those people he has more time to go than he has served, right? There is no good riddance to, to Madison Coffin, whether you love him or whether you don't like him. Um, he is still technically our representative. And so I, I think folks in the region need to continue to pay attention to him. I think it's also worth noting that for very different circumstances, Buncombe County's state legislative delegation is going to change a lot, right? So we've seen we have five folks in the General Assembly on the House and the Senate side who represent all represent parts of Buncombe County, essentially four of those five are not running for that office again. The one person who is likely to run again is, is Julie Mayfield, who is in her first term. So the loss of expertise that we're going to experience, that we are experiencing here in Western North Carolina is, is pretty extraordinary, whether it's at the congressional side where we have a freshman member who's already looking eastward, or whether it's on the general assembly side where we are losing you know, decades of experience in one fell swoop.
0: And to get to that, we'll get back to Buncombe County in a second, but to go to the whole General Assembly delegation from Western North Carolina, there's three or four other freshmen in addition to Julie Mayfield, Kevin Corbin's freshmen in being in the Mm -hmm. Senate, uh, uh, two freshman representatives also right now. So uh, in the state legislative level, having people that certainly have life experience, but maybe not legislative experiences, even if those in those branches, what do you lose at the legislative level? Because you and I both are very, very big supporters of talking about how much state government is the one that really affects people's day-to-day lives, not what happens in D.C. So having that le- lack of legislative experience, what does that mean for Western North Carolina? You
1: know, I think it means everything that uh, that state government touches um, is potentially affected. And that is a whole lot of your life. And it is more of your life, I would argue, even than what happens at the federal level. Um the amount of experience we're losing again regardless of of what you think about any of these folks and their policies but susan fisher and john Ager and brian turner and chuck edwards have all served a number of terms susan fisher i think six you know like 16 and a half years that she served in the general assembly to lose those folks means we're not gonna have anybody who knows the details of the legislative process. We're gonna elect somebody who I hope is good in all of these districts, regardless of partisanship, but they're not gonna know the ins and outs of everything from you know, education to regulation, to um, you know all the different parts of our lives that state government touches. And what that means is the people with the knowledge it's going to be the lobbyists right those are the people who hang around from term to term to term those are the people who know how to get a bill through those are the people who know their perceived needs so when we see this kind of turnover it is really one group that benefits and that is the unelected lobbyists
0: but before we go full on doom and gloom cuz we don't necessarily mean to do that here but <laughs> turnover particularly at the state legislative level turnover does happen Quite a bit. So this isn't, while it is a big blow to this area to see this kind of turnover, or isn't a big blow, depending on how you feel about things, but turnover is kind of part of the state legislative life, right?
1: Absolutely. And there is an argument um, that turnover is a good thing. Um, So the term limits movement. In a lot of states, we have term limits. We say you can only serve X number of terms. Well, one thing we know about term limits, that's going to increase turnover, of course. And so some people would argue that this is a good thing for democracy, that we get new ideas in, that we get different kinds of people in, The evidence on term limits isn't great as far as the legislative process, but it does increase turnover. And if you think that's the best goal is to throw the bums
0: out, get different
1: bums, then it's a great
0: day. Back to something something else I've heard you talk about a lot, but this really came through when we heard about the retirements of Susan Fisher, John Eager, and Brian Turner, uh, all of them hinting in some way that the longer sessions of the General Assembly now that have been taking place, and this year took almost the entire year, um, has grown a lot on them. It's taken a lot out of them, particularly given how North Carolina legislators are paid. And you've talked about this a lot as how low legislators are paid in North Carolina and how that affects the people that are able to serve in the General Assembly. So take us through that. Uh, Talk about the low pay and whom that ends up benefiting and whom that ends up hurting.
1: Absolutely. So political scientists, talk about state legislative professionalism, which is essentially the degree to which state legislatures look like Congress in terms of their resources. So in North Carolina, we pay our state legislators $13,951 a year. We do give them a small per diem, I think it's about $104. I remember the last time you tried to get a hotel in Raleigh, but 104 isn't gonna do very much for a hotel in Raleigh, not to mention your food. Um, And so, That pay is really difficult, I think, for anyone, but particularly those of us in the West, those of us farther from the state capitol. If you live in Wake County and you represent Wake County, you may be able to go home for lunch and grab a turkey sandwich. You can sleep in your own bed. Um, Turkey sandwiching can be good by the time you get back to Asheville or by the time you get back to Murphy. So it feels very different out here. Also, the session length has creeped longer and longer and longer, and it is also unpredictable. So I think it would be one thing if we said, hey, we're gonna make it longer. We said that in the front end and we say exactly how long you're gonna be in Raleigh and how often, but we don't do that. It changes, it's unpredictable. So the kinds of people who can afford to run, one, they have to be people who can afford to make $13,951 a year, and which for the most part are retired people or people who already have a lot of money and at the very least people have flexible schedules but also the ability to go back and forth to rally, essentially at the drop of a hat. And and you're right, all three talked about it. I thought all three talked in particular about the increasing problem of session length and maintaining a life back here in Buncombe County or wherever they happen to be from. So this state legislative professionalism, I think has always been a problem. It's getting worse, our state is growing, our state is becoming more diverse. And for good, bad or indifferent, our General Assembly is growing in power. Our governor does not have a lot of power statutorily. Our General Assembly does. And so as we grow, as they're more important, we're not giving them the resources to complete their jobs.
0: Well, I'm sure it's, uh, running on a platform of paying legislators more is a absolutely winning proposition yes. for anyone who would want to do it. <laughs> That's right. Pay is one thing. The length of the session is a different thing. And, you know, you studied legislatures. I've covered some legislatures, one, Maryland, 90 days, Virginia, 60 days. North Carolina's is different where it just can go on longer and longer, but it hasn't traditionally. How, um, I guess, out of the ordinary is it for a session like this year's to go almost the entire year in North Carolina?
1: It's getting more and more common. But yeah, look, the, the General Assembly session is like a, it's like an un, you know a house guest who stays too long after dinner and you're kind of eyeballing them thinking, are we going to get up off this table eventually? And they just keep staying. Um, that's what our General Assembly says session feels like to me, and it is increasing in length over time. Look, it ebbs and flows year to year. We have what is described as the short session and the long session. And the idea is a good one. In the long session, we pass the budget. In the short session, we don't pass the budget. Ideally, the long session should be longer than the short session. The problem is a few years ago, the short session was actually longer than the long session. And regardless of what you call it, both sessions have increased in time, the amount of time we're spending in Raleigh. It's taken us longer and longer to do the work of government. And that does take a toll, again, I would argue, more so for those of us who live in the western part of the state or the far eastern part of the state as well.
0: This last few questions to wrap up 2021, and we look forward to 2022. Here's something that came up in the press conference this week, actually about COVID 19 that Governor Roy Cooper was holding. He was asked about one, his, his you know, he's already. Uh, made his statements about Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson, a Republican, feeling that his bigoted comments about the LGBTQ community uh, were something he should resign over. Obviously, Lieutenant Governor hasn't done that, but it was asked if Governor Cooper is at all concerned if he were to leave the state that gov- the lieutenant governor would take over uh, the state. Now, there is a law regarding when the governor does leave, whomever the governor is, uh, does leave North Carolina, what happens, whether it's official travel or unofficial travel. Um, you look this up uh <laughs> mostly because I asked you to after I heard this during the press conference. But um, and I think it is interesting because it's – I think it's going to be a bit of uh, – uh, there's going to be that tension for the next three years since you're seeing such disparate political positions between the governor and lieutenant governor. So, again, what is the rule in the state constitution about what happens if the governor does leave the state of North Carolina?
1: So the state constitution says during absence from the state or during mental or physical incapacity of the governor to perform the duties of his office – the lieutenant governor shall be acting governor. So, acting governor has the power of governor. Absence from the state again is your key language here. This has actually come up a few times in in North Carolina history. So, in 2017, Roy Cooper uh, left the state a few times. Turns out he didn't actually tell Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest. So, Dan Forrest would find out after the fact that he was in fact acting governor and didn't know it. Uh, when Roy Cooper and his administration was asked about it, they said, "Look." The Constitution says that he has that power. Constitution doesn't say we have to tell him when we're leaving. Um, It happened in 2011, Bev Perdue was our governor. This was a more serious um, example. She was in Kentucky visiting some family and there were some tornadoes in the state and some folks died. And the governor's office went hours without a response. And so I think that's why this is here is to avoid that kind of thing. Um, There's some also funny examples from North Carolina history of of the follow-up question, which is what happens if both the governor and the lieutenant governor are gone? And the answer appears to be nobody really knows. So in 1961, Terry Sanford and the lieutenant governor went to Hawaii for some sort of a conference. Somebody asked him, who's in charge? Terry Sanford said, well, little Terry might be in charge, meaning his six-year-old son. In 1979, Hunt and his lieutenant governor went to China. So when he says, well, what happens while you're gone? And he said, I don't know. Let's hope we make it back. So the Constitution isn't that clear on what happens if both the governor and the lieutenant governor are gone. It is clear, though, that if the governor is out of state, Mark Robinson becomes acting governor, whether he knows it or not.
0: So we'll wrap up uh, this year on the porch with you by going back to our first interview from uh, this year in 2021. You've been our far, by by far, most frequent guest on the porch this year. And we talked uh, about the week after uh, the insurrection. We discussed um, that in that episode. We talked about the insurrection and kind of where we were. You used the term it was going to be a dark few weeks in American history. Um, given what was happening after that, the inauguration of President Joe Biden hadn't happened yet. yet. I think a lot of people can, maybe if they want to go back and think about that time, will probably forget how much anxiety there was over the inauguration, what was going to happen during it. And of course, it went off without any incident. But again, you said, you know, a dark few weeks. Did those dark few weeks pass to you? Have they stretched out for the entire year? Are they looming into 2022? Um, How much have we... I guess, tried to – well, I think maybe we've moved on from the time. I think everybody can say that. But whether that's good or bad or whether we've moved on in a good or bad way is certainly up to interpretation. But where are we? Because we talk about democratic ideals, and that's small d, democratic ideals, quite a bit. Where are we at the end of 2021?
1: Yeah, it's a good time to think about that, Matt. I think on the one hand, some of the violence fears that we had after, again, not before, but after January 6th, I think weren't quite as bad. The the worst was not realized there, right? So when I went back and listened to that conversation, you know, we talked a lot about potential violence in the capitals. And I'm not saying things were smooth, but that part probably wasn't quite as bad as we feared that it might've been. Obviously, the inauguration went off without violence as well. So in some ways, some of it passed. Uh, you know, on the other hand, I think what we're learning about what led up to January 6 and what we've seen afterwards is, um, you know, not worse, but it is also fairly dark. I mean, we are seeing some real erosion of democratic ideals. I don't think there's any doubt about that. It's not all at the federal level. Again, to return to one of our big themes, I think a lot of this ends up being at the state level. Um, we've seen some some real erosion of of faith in elections. We have seen, um, we've now learned that even before the last election happened, that Mark Meadows was considering ways to uh, challenge the votes in states like North Carolina. North Carolina was actually mentioned to try to figure out ways to get our General Assembly to weigh in on those ideas. So I think the answer is sort of turning us away from violence but it's turning us more towards awareness or what I hope is awareness of how we run elections and that the fundamental thing we need in elections is people who are willing to lose those elections and step off the stage, whether that person is a Democrat or Republican. And I think we all need to do our part to make sure that that key component continues in 2022. If you're the Democratic Party and you lose some seats, if you're the Republican Party and you lose some seats, we need to live to not fight another day, we need to live to govern another day. And um, I hope we're all paying attention to that.
0: It's Dr. Chris Cooper of Western Carolina University. We will certainly hear a lot more from him in the coming new year. You're listening to The Porch, a production of the BPR News Team. Up next, we talk about green burials, a way you can combat climate change from the grave. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Porch, a production of the BPR News Team. I'm Matt Bush. Hanging in the air, literally, during the chaos of 2021, is climate change. There are plenty of ways it shows up in our lives and plenty of steps we can take to slow it. One that may be uncomfortable to talk about is something we will all face, our own deaths, and how that intersects with climate change. I spoke with Warren Wilson College professor Mallory McDuff about her new book, Our Last Best Act planning for the end of our lives to protect the people and places we love. It examines, among many things, the growing diversity of options for green burials in Western North Carolina. You said that this is a good time of year to talk about these things, to talk about death, to talk about funeral plans, to talk about burials versus cremation and how climate change fits into all these conversations. Uh, Why is this a good time of year to do that?
2: Well, you know, I can speak for myself that I haven't been to my hometown in Fairhope, Alabama in two years because of pandemic, but this year I am going back home. So I think this is a time of year where families gather, we get together for meals, we talk about shared stories, we talk about family history. And talking about our final wishes is a really important conversation to have with each other before we get to the emergency state where someone has died. And we have to make decisions really at the drop of a hat.
0: How do you begin those conversations? Um, There is a stigma attached to talking about death and grief and and burials, even in a time in a pandemic, we're still experiencing that stigma. How do you uh, what's a way maybe to open that conversation up or to, to get it started? Because I think once it gets started, people really do begin to open up. Well,
2: that's what I found, Matt. And it's interesting because I've really wrote this book and started the research. This was a one-year journey to revise my own final wishes with climate change and community in mind and cost. That was a big factor for me. I'm a single mom with two kids, and you know, affordability is really important. But I really modeled my research and my conversations with my two daughters on what my father had done for me and that wasn't this big conversation where he sat everybody down um but he started with small conversations over the course of time just talking like we talk with kids in everyday life Um, and then when my mother was killed and uh she was cycling was killed by a team driver at 58 and in that case a month after her death he did sit us down and gave us two pages of directives. But the interesting thing was that these were variables he talked to us about for all our lives. He wanted a pine casket. He wanted a funeral that relied on family and friends. He wanted his bluegrass gospel band around the grave site and shovels around the grave so young and old could fill the grave. So his directives weren't a surprise, but when he too was killed um, in a mirror image accident by another team driver two years later, in our total shock, we could pull on his, those two pages. And it was, it was like his directives gave us a roadmap. Um, and so that's what I then tried to do in this book was to revise my final wishes, which was for cremation. But I wanted to know what are some more sustainable options and in this region we have a diversity of options it's not just burial versus cremation
0: so talk to us about green barrels versus cremation and how climate change fits into this And i guess really maybe to start the conversation death and climate change how do they interact with each other how do they intersect with each other
2: well i certainly had not thought about it in terms of climate change my final wishes as i said years after my parents death i Looked at my final wishes, and I had chosen cremation. It's cheap, it's affordable, it's accessible. Um, You know, I liken it to dropping and picking off a prescription in some way. It's not hard, and that's really appealing, especially just you know having a busy life, uh, the busy lives that we do. But what I learned in my research was that um, cremation, you are burning fossil fuels to a temperature of at least 1,400 for several hours. Um, And there's nothing wrong with cremation per se, but the purpose of the book was for me to look at alternatives. One of those alternatives is green burial. And we have the option here in Western North Carolina of a conservation cemetery called Carolina Memorial Sanctuary. And that is one of about 16 conservation burial grounds where the land is actually protected in perpetuity through conservation easements. But to do a green burial, you don't have to be at a conservation cemetery. For example, my father was buried in a neighborhood cemetery, and the contract for that cemetery did not require a vault. So you, you can just ask, if you, ha- if you live in an re- area where there are neighborhood cemeteries like we have here at Warren Wilson, you can look, ask to look at the contract. Um, but there are many mo- more options as well that I'd, I'd love to talk about, too, beyond cremation and burial.
0: And let's get into those, but I I guess first, one thing you did say in the book that I found interesting is you also go over a lot of things that people may not realize they don't need to do for funerals and burials. A lot of things like embalming, like you know whom transports uh, the the body and all that kind of thing. Tell us some of the things that are in the book that people know that you don't actually have to do these things. And this really also, of course, deals with cost because some of those things can be quite costly. Right. Um,
2: One thing my father had repeated to us growing up was that embalming is not legally required um, you know, by any state. And the first embalming that most people in this country at the time saw after the Civil War um, was the body of Abraham Lincoln. So pre-Civil War embalming in the US was not really a thing. It began to preserve the bodies of soldiers to, um, to transport back up north, for example. Um, I'm really clear. I try to be really clear in the book that decisions about what we do with our bodies are influenced by our culture, by our religion, by finances, by families. You know, some families have used the same funeral home for generations. Um, But in my family, I knew that care for the earth was a big priority. Um, And so that's why I was looking at options that were options different from cremation. So climate factors in, in the sense of I was looking for options that didn't use as many fossil fuels and also involve my community. Um, Because part of that involvement really is one way of carrying the love of people who have died.
0: So your father used a pine box um, for for his funeral. Um, Green burials, that is one way of doing things. What are some of the options of green burials that you found out as you wrote the book?
2: So green burial in general is defined as burial without embalming or a concrete vault, which is a concrete box essentially that sits in the grave. Primarily, it's um, there to, keep, to try to keep the ground level for landscaping. Um, and the third variable is that you can't use, you want to use biodegradable materials. So you wouldn't have like a metal casket. Um, my dad wanted to build his own casket. He built a prototype of his casket when I was like in middle school and my mom kept her jewelry in it. Um, but in the end, cause he died suddenly, he had talked to a friend of his prior to his death. And so the friend built his pine casket, you know, in 24 hours, essentially, he pulled an all nighter for, for the funeral
0: materials, I guess, what should people be looking at if they're looking at green barrels? Do they even need a coffin in some cases? Or I mean, what sorts of options exist outside of that? You say you're making sure there's no use of concrete, making sure there's no use of fossil fuels, or as limited a use of fossil fuels as possible and all these things. What are the options, I guess?
2: Well, you don't need um, a casket, for example. You can have a, a shroud. And there's one chapter in the book where I look at some different options for for shrouds part of the background of the book kind of the subtext of the whole book for me were these conversations i had primarily with my youngest daughter you know i'd be taking her to dance class and we would talk about the options because ultimately she and my older daughter are the ones who are going to have to deal with it so i can plan an elaborate um, home funeral. But in the book, you know, my daughters were like, I don't think we want your body at home. <laughs> you know? And so these conversations are important because they evolve over time. So a shroud is uh, certainly an option. Um, as long as like my dad wanted his body wrapped in my mother's linens. So the linens that had graced her table, dining room table. So that's what we, we did. But shroud burial is, uh, you know, it's practiced all over the, all over the world. And it's legal. I guess that's the point.
0: What are some biodegradable materials people should think about?
2: Linen, cotton. Those are materials that degrade anything that's um, that is biodegradable.
0: Back to the question I think you hinted at the beginning there of, of cremation versus a green burial, which is which leaves a smaller carbon footprint. Um, or is it an either or question? I guess is about, is about maybe a better way to frame that.
2: Yeah, I don't think it's an either or question. And you know, I I think it's as I teach environmental education. So I'm really clear on the reality that my one death, what I choose is not going to transform the climate crisis. Um, but climate scientist, Katherine Hayhoe says that every, every solution matters. And I do believe that talking about both death and climate change are some of the most important things we can do and our individual actions and collective create momentum. Um, to, to me, This is just as much about community as it is about climate. Um, Some of the options that I discovered beyond cremation and green burial include donation to a body farm. We have a body farm 45 minutes away from Asheville at Western Carolina University, where you can donate your body for the study of decomposition. And those that early research paved the way for the legalization of human composting. Now legal in Washington state in Oregon and Colorado, with legislation introduced in other states. So there's a lot. I just had no idea of the diversity of options, which was one of the revelations to me of the book.
0: And cost, too. Obviously, this is much cheaper to go through all these things. A, a traditional burial, I think, as it's defined, is can be quite expensive.
2: Well, the the statistic that is floated around a lot is like a $10,000 average cost for a conventional um, burial. And that includes you know the funeral, the it includes a lot of different different factors, but you know the one of the most popular fundraising um, pieces on like GoFundMe is GoFundMe for funeral cost. And you know if you want if you live in this region and you want to donate your body to Western Carolina University to the forensic and osteology lab, it's free. You can set up. I could set it up online in twenty minutes um go to their website the only cost is transportation to their facility but a lot of the funeral homes provide affordable transport um so so that's i think that that issue of in in a way it becomes a social justice and environmental justice issue because if we as consumers know what our options are then we can ask for them i think there are funeral homes particularly in our area who are willing and able to work with consumers but as one funeral director told me, if people don't ask for a pine casket, I can't sell it to them. You know, I don't know to sell it to them. So demand can, I think, shape um, practices.
0: Final few questions. For people who, who may find comfort in being able to go visit a site, to visit a, a, grave site at a, at a uh, you know in a cemetery, some of these options may take that particular option away for loved ones who want to be able to go and visit their loved one in a cemetery or somewhere where they may be buried. Um, what do you say to those who say that is an important part to them, that people have a place to visit that they may not have if they choose one of these options?
2: Well, it's funny because that was one of my car ride conversations with my youngest daughter. Cause um, I was talking about human composting um, and body donation to the, to Western Carolina where I spent some time observing and she said exactly that. She said, I want to go and visit you somewhere. For some people that doesn't matter. And of course she's a teenager that might change over time. But that was really the um, the feeling that prompted me to spend basically a year talking with the cemetery trustees at the warren Wilson Cemetery. Um, a retired math professor named Ray Stock was kind of the decision maker of the cemetery which is on our property. And very few people knew that the, the contract required vaults. So we spent a year in conversation. And just about a month before his death, he was 85 at the time when we were talking. About a month before his death, he agreed to change the cemetery contract language. And, you know, that was, it's just one cemetery, but it was the discussion that we had together that really shifted that policy. Um, so I would say, ask the questions. If, if, you're, if you have access to cemeteries, don't be afraid to ask, because if we don't ask for what we need, we certainly won't get it.
0: As you went through the journey of writing the book, um, how much did you learn? And how much, I guess, would you say, because you begin the book talking about your father, how much of your own grief, and you talked about the deaths of both your parents earlier in the interview, how much of your own grief informed what you were seeking and what you learned as you did the book?
2: If they were the reason that I wrote the book, it became a way for me to carry their love with me and to talk about who they are, who they were with my children. There's a song that my college roommate, Elizabeth Teague, who's a city planner um, in this region in Waynesville, she wrote a a song called Carry My Love that's kind of become the theme song for the book. And I think in planning final wishes and exploring options, For me, it's been a way to carry the love of my parents onto my children. And what more could we ask for when we don't have access to the people that we're close to anymore?
0: A lot of people may be feeling similar things right now. We're wrapping up 2021. Another wave of the pandemic is coming with the Omicron virus. This week, we patched the grim milestone of 800,000 Americans dead from COVID-19. There is a lot of grief hanging around us all the time, and there's a lot of death hanging around us all the time. While at the same time, we're kind of being told to go about our lives. What can you say to people right now that are feeling that weight but aren't expressing it?
2: Well, you know, as a teacher at Warren Wilson teaching environmental education, I've been so struck with how eager my students have been to talk about death. They just haven't been asked often, you know, what do you think about this? What, what, you know, what's happened in your family? How can the environment and climate connect to death and love and family? And I think just opening the question and having some options. I mean, death is in the end about logistics. Immediately after, I mean, that's like really crass, but that's is pretty much what it is. And you know, logistics made in the midst of deep, deep reservoirs of emotion. Um, So I would say talking about logistics is much easier when you're not in shock. And that's what my parents and my father specifically gave to me. And that's what I'm trying to, that's kind of the message that I want trying to spread with this book.
0: That's Mallory McDuff, the author of Our Last Best Act, planning for the end of our lives to protect the people and places we love. Find out more about the Warren Wilson College Professor's book with our free mobile app or at bpr.org. After this short break, Lily Canep gives us a history lesson on reconstruction in our region. You're listening to The Porch, a production of the BPR News Team. Welcome back to The Port production of the BPR News Team. I'm Matt Bush. Virgil Bryson was a free black man who helped register voters in Jackson County after the Civil War in 1868. He was threatened by the early version of the KKK and supported by the Freedmen's Bureau. Although much about Bryson remains unknown, BPR's Lily Knepp talked with local historians and community members about his story and what we can learn from him today.
3: Elerna Bryson Forney is a native of Jackson County who's now 58. She's looked deeply into her family history, but she's never heard of Virgil Bryson. I couldn't find anybody that knew anybody named Virgil. I'm trying to get a hold of my
4: uncle. He's 90-something years old. His memory's still pretty good.
3: Through family research and working on the book, When All God's Children Get Together with Cherokee County Historian Ann Miller-Woodford, Forney has learned a lot about her family tree.
4: It was interesting, but the ones that really knew the history... Some of them really wouldn't even talk because you need to leave skeletons in the closet. <laughs> you know, I'll say good, better, otherwise. That's what made us who we are. But some of the older ones did not get it. They did not mind giving their family tree, but true history—you know, the things that you heard and seeing the things I heard—I couldn't say because I was not there.
3: Virgil Bryson is mentioned in letters written by Western Freedmen's Bureau Representative Lieutenant George Hawley. The Freedmen's Bureau was installed after the Civil War to improve access to food, education, and work for freed black people and others. An office was set up in Asheville in 1866, explains historian Stephen Nash.
5: For a short time after the Civil War, Hendersonville and Asheville were occupied by United States forces. But then those forces were gone by the end of 1865. And the Freedmen's Bureau comes in slowly because the United States government, especially under Andrew Johnson, Uh, Johnson viewed the Freedmen's Bureau as unconstitutional. He believed it was an overreach of federal power, and there was no mechanism put in place when the Bureau was created to pay for it. Uh, It was only supposed to survive for the duration of the war and one year after.
3: In 1860, before the Civil War, there were almost 13,000 people in Buncombe County. About 16% of the population was Black. That includes about 2,000 enslaved people and 100 free people. The numbers vary across western North Carolina's other counties from 28 percent black in Burke County to 3.7 percent in Watauga County. Nash explains after the Civil War, western North Carolina had few roads and the railroad into Asheville wasn't built yet.
5: I, I think that that's one of the biggest problems that the United States military and the Freedmen's Bureau experienced in Appalachia after the war was the absence of roads. In the case of western North Carolina, the absence of a railroad meant that you have this sort of very small military presence, basically one cavalry regiment and an infantry unit, and they're responsible for everything Morganton and West. In
3: 1867, a bureau was set up in Macon County in Franklin to cover the region west of Asheville. This was Lieutenant George Hawley's office.
5: The bureau, particularly in the areas where there's no real good roads and communication networks, they're almost on an island. And they have to adapt to the situation that they find locally. And, and when Holly came to Macon County, he he worked to try to help uh, African Americans establish themselves as best as he could. Um, and it was it was not easy. there is there violence and pushback in that district.
3: Local historian Barbara McCray researched Holly's work in Franklin too. McCray passed away in March 2021. She spoke with BPR in February.
6: One of the first things he had to do was to get orders for an office, office furniture for a desk and a table and some chairs, very bare bones.
3: Holly's letters are part of the Smithsonian Museum's digitized records of the Freedmen's Bureau. The letters are available online and detail the needs of community members, such as efforts to organize schools for black students. Holly also reports violence.
6: The stirrings of what would become the KKK over there, especially in the Webster area. And um, some of the people that he was involved with, like uh, Virgil Bryson is um, a former slave. He was a freedman, and he was attacked. He had come to Hawley's attention. Um, Apparently, they were appointing people to register black people to vote, black men, and also as inspectors of the elections to make sure that nothing went wrong. This upset some of the more rabid white people.
3: McCray is referring to the time before the 1868 election when black men were able to register to vote before the passage of the 15th Amendment. McCray, who loved to read through old census documents, said there aren't clear numbers for black people in the area during this time.
6: That decade, that decade was so traumatic, so turbulent. There was so much movement. You know, there was the war, and then there was trying to figure out what to do after the war.
3: Virgil Bryson was appointed to register those men to vote. But Bryson and people close to him were repeatedly assaulted and harassed, according to Hawley's letters. Here's one example in 1868. Hawley writes, State's outrages perpetuated on Virgil Bryson, freedman, living near Webster, Jackson County, by John Allison and William Bumgarner. The former carried off his gun and threatened his life, and the latter assaulted him and took away his horse.
6: Poor Lieutenant Hawley had a time because... I mean, one man could not possibly deal with four highly-placed, prominent white men in Jackson County. They were never charged by any civil authority. And uh, Bumgarner himself was a former sheriff. And there just was nothing that Holly could do except make reports.
3: Hawley also reported a potential lynching in Jackson County that he could not prove of a black man named Henry Matthews. Barbara McCrae dug into these stories and tried to track Virgil Bryson's genealogy. McCrae said in her research she found Bryson was the child of a man named Peter Gray. When he was freed, he changed his name to Bryson. While McCray wasn't able to learn everything about Bryson, the Women's History Trail in Macon County is organizing a library of her research so that scholars will be able to pick up where McRae left off. The people and events reported by Lt. George Hawley are still felt today. The names remain local. Bryson, Allison, and Bub Garner can be found on street signs across the region. And voting rights continue to need protection. Eleanor and Bryson Forney found other twists and turns in her family genealogy research.
4: For instance, like there's um supposedly two sets of Brysons in silver, black Brysons. There's a darker side and a lighter side, you know what that means, you know. But then when I went through the death records at the courthouse there was two David Brysons who had two women pregnant at the same time and both of those women named their sons David. You know, and once I bought that up, everybody clammed down. You know, everybody clamped down quickly on both sides. And I I am curious to know more about this man myself.
3: Overall, Forney feels not enough people know about the history of black people in western North Carolina, from slavery to local civil rights efforts. She recalls a gathering to talk about Jackson County history where people said there were never any racial issues in the county.
4: I had to shut it down. I said, I'm through because they told me that in silver, you did not know that stuff like that was going on, you know, because silver was okay, Silver was fine and it was okay, you know, for them to call Mr. Jim, nigger Jim. It was okay for people to walk miles and miles to clean their house and take care of their children when their children are at home and this and that. But that, you know, you, you didn't know that civil rights stuff was happening based on silver.
3: Forney says she believes the community is closed off in a way because it is safer. During the time of the Freedmen's Bureau, early members of the Ku Klux Klan attacked people like Virgil Bryson in order to stop him from registering others to vote. In 1868, their efforts did not work. Stephen Nash, says that Lt. Hawley and Virgil Bryson's work registering Black men to vote and others like them across the state is what won the election for Republicans.
5: He got involved, as the Bureau did, in helping to create the boards of registration for voters in 1867 and 68, when Black men were allowed to vote for the first time, even before the 15th Amendment, they were registered to vote in 1867, and then they voted in the state elections of 1868, which swung the state to the Republican Party.
3: The results convinced national policymakers that Reconstruction had succeeded and prompted the closure of the Freedmen's Bureau outposts in the mountains, taking away a line of defense for Black people. For a while, the government held and Black rights expanded. In part of North Carolina, a fusion government of populist and Republican parties led Black men to be elected into positions of power. Here's Stephen Nash again.
5: African Americans continue to sort of play a role somewhat through the 1880s. And then in the 1890s, you get a hold another crazy North Carolina electoral cycle with Republican and populist fusion, which brings African Americans back into the heart of the debate, which then helps to set up the things that come with Wilmington, and that's part of a sort of statewide cycle of violence, is geared against African Americans and a result of the Republican fusion and uh, drifts towards disfranchisement.
3: Nash says it's complicated, but the changing political landscape during the 1870s ultimately led to another rise of violence and voter suppression in the state, which culminated in 1898. There was the Wilmington Massacre that year, during which as many as 250 people were killed, as well as incidents in the mountains on the other side of North Carolina. The Ku Klux Klan and other paramilitary groups like the Red Shirts began a campaign of violence to deter Black people from voting. In Franklin, this resulted in the lynching of Mitchell Mosley, according to local historians.
5: The violence in reconstruction in that period is inherently political. But a lot of local historians seem to want it not to be. Um, And I'm painting with a broad brush, but that is sort of an observation that I've had that I find quite interesting. In
3: 1898, the racist groups were successful in destroying the rights that had been won by black politicians and community leaders. And instead pushed the country towards voting literacy tests and other segregation laws.
5: One of the things that the Ku Klux Klan was very good at during Reconstruction it's essentially to convince the world that they did not exist.
3: For Nash, the tactics of violence and misinformation are the same tactics still being used today, such as in the January 6th insurrection. Eleanor Bryson Forney agrees.
5: There
4: is just no surprise. You know, the thing that happened at Washington, that's not a surprise to most of us. What is surprised is no one is being held accountable. We You know, it's not a surprise that there's Klansmen, there's Um, Still some skinheads around here. I thought they were gone, but they're still here. We know they're here. We know who some of them are. Last president for his service because he took the sheets off a lot of them.
3: She says there was a reason that there weren't many local black people at the Reconciled Silva marches against the Confederate monument in the summer of 2020.
4: It's not new, and we knew about it, but our parents, mostly our grandparents, were so protective that they, like I said, they wanted us to, you know, stay in our place.
3: Forney wants to highlight the everyday racism of name calling and discrimination that's worked its way into the systems that organize and govern society. That's called systemic racism.
4: And that's why it's so important that um, right now to have um, white people helping us because I don't think anybody would listen otherwise. The political machine, I don't think they would listen to just people of color or poor people.
3: While the violence towards Virgil Bryson isn't surprising for Forney, his prominent plays in the community also doesn't come as a shock. I think it's
4: awesome and I never doubt it because I think every era has a powerful black person and we may not know who they are. Totally, you know, it doesn't surprise me, but it's nice to know. I, I believe, you know, God puts people, different people in different places at different times. And it, and it's just so nice to know that there was somebody that was bold enough to get out there and got out there as much as they could. I think that is just fantabulous.
3: While the full history of Virgil Bryson may be unknown, thanks to Forney, McRae, Nash, and others, the history of this region has been documented to help better understand how we got here. I'm Lily Kanep. BPR News.
0: Does it For this edition of The Porch, our final one for 2021, when we return in 2022, Lily Canep will be in the host chair for the next episode, and she wants to hear from you. Did you retire to the mountains of western North Carolina? For a special episode of The Porch in January, BPR is exploring why people retire here. Share your story with us by recording a voice memo and sending it to voices at bpr.org or leave us a voicemail at 828-253-6700. We look forward to hearing from you. The BPR News team is Ellen Chickering, Lily Kanett, Matt Pykin, Corey Valancourt, Megan Kane, and me, Matt Bush. If programming like this illuminates your day, support it financially. We're in our year-end drive at Blue Ridge Public Radio, and these in-depth looks at our region are possible because of your financial support. Make sure they continue in 2022 by giving now at BPR.org. And thanks. We'll see you next year on The Porch. Stay safe.